Bishop Montfort, and thank you so much for your presence here this evening. And I hope I have your permission to say mass and preach in your diocese. <laughs> but I didn't ask, but I think it's okay. That's super. I also, indeed, you got to be careful, right, friends? You've got to be careful. I want to thank as well, of course, this university, and Father Sean, Father Terrence, the boards. I know there are board members here, and uh, the whole staff and administration for their great kindness in uh, thinking of me and awarding me uh, this degree. And I uh, want to thank all the uh, priests here and those who are also teachers of theology uh, who'd be willing to let a bishop get an honorary degree like this. I think that's great. <laughs> Just think that's spectacular. I, I, I saw tonight before, before the liturgy, I hadn't seen for some time, I saw Father Francis Martin. Forty years ago, he gave a retreat to the seminarians at the North American College in Rome, of which I was one. And there's still a talk from that retreat I remember to this day. And I'm not going to tell you what it is other than to say it was based on Matthew 11, 25 to 30. It was a great, great talk. I want to express my congratulations to all of us who are graduates as of tomorrow. To the undergraduates, the graduates, and those with honorary degrees. It marks an achievement that is always important to us as personal agents. Thanks should also be given to our parents and families who are here, to our friends and benefactors for their support, for their guidance, for their encouragement, for their confidence in us, and of course, for their cash, right? Have you thought of that, graduates? In the same breath as that, we must also thank the faculty, the administration, and staff at Franciscan University. Their teaching and direction are more than just a contractual agreement. They love teaching. They love the conversation that is learning. I hope that this is a grateful student body that regularly shows gratitude to their professors, their staff, and to the various tutors, both official and unofficial, who have led you to this weekend. Our greatest thanksgiving is to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we are involved in that action right now. Baccalaureate days are also called commencement, and rightfully so, since the graduates are now at a significant beginning. St. Augustine, that most astute theological and philosophical, but also astute and most remarkable political thinker, in the best sense, a thinker about life in the city, writes a great epithet about human beings. This is what he says. Ut esset initio homo creatus est priusquam erat nihil. All of the graduates don't need that to be translated, but for the rest of us mortals, I will translate it. That there be a beginning. Human beings were created before whom there was nothing. 
St. Augustine didn't mean there weren't other things around. Why did he make this most provocative statement? With the creation of human beings, St. Augustine is saying, the very principle of beginning entered the world. Each human being is a new beginning. May your agency be blessed and distinctive as you embark on your new place in the world in the days and years ahead. But St. Augustine would surely add immediately that the days of human beings, beyond being new beginnings, must be filled with caritas, which means God's love. Franciscan University challenges each one of you to be a new beginning to transform the culture. I just read that at your website on Wednesday. That's what you're doing. You're passionate about Catholic truth, and, and there's a goal, which is transforming the culture. They always think big here at Franciscan University. That's because they are passionately Catholic. And to be Catholic is to be big and generous and wide. We are almost at the midpoint of the Easter season. And my burden this evening is to say a few words about these majestic readings that are assigned to Friday of the third week of Easter. Like the Word of God in general, specifically tonight, these readings are very penetrating, sharp and effective, goes right to the heart. Sisters and brothers, at the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, the risen Jesus gathers around the twelve, and he says, stay put in Jerusalem for a little bit anyway. You're going to get power. Now, when that happens, you're going to be my witnesses starting in Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. St. Luke must have taken those words very seriously because the whole plot of the Acts of the Apostles is what? Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and the ends of the earth. He's very obedient, St. Luke. And St. Luke, because the Holy Spirit is the principal actor of the Acts of the Apostles, is very intense on showing that the Word of God always leads the way no matter what happens. The Word of God always gets through. The Word of God is always progressing. Every disaster is an opportunity. Look at the execution of Stephen. Looks like a disaster for the Greek-speaking Christians in the Jerusalem church. Everybody gets scattered. What happens? They start preaching the good news to Samaria and Judea. It's just simply wonderful that Philip the deacon and others didn't get totally depressed because their mission seemingly in Jerusalem was over. Out they go, and the word keeps getting through. May I also add, that the first eight chapters of the Acts of the Apostles, which we've been reading since Easter Sunday, uh, they use a word, or Luke uses a word that's really great. You can't translate it. That's why it's so good. The Greek word is parousia. It means truth. It means conviction. It means boldness. It means assurance. And I shouldn't say this to people who are graduating from college, but it's first said of the Apostles in wonder 
by the chief priests and scribes, he said, because they say, these apostles are agrammatoi. They don't know their letters, stupid illiterates. How can they be so bold? You know your letters, but you can still be bold. You can still be powerfully of the truth. Because what gets hold of the 12, what gets hold of anybody, where they have a STD, a PhD, or graduated from Schmomunk grade school, doesn't matter. What matters, do you pick up what it is that the Lord Jesus, through his spirit, gives you, gives in the power of his resurrection? Now, tonight, chapter 9 of Acts. This is the bombshell chapter in the Acts of the Apostles. An absolute bomb goes off. Why is that? Remember Saul? Wasn't he the cloakroom attendant that took the numbers for the robes of those who were going to stone Stephen? What's this? Saul's knocked down on his face in the midst of his, his religious fanaticism for his beautiful Jewish faith. Last Friday at this very time, sisters and brothers, you love to brag when you get to go to Rome. I was in Rome, post-canonization. I was put on the Committee for the Economic Advisors of the Holy See. Eight cardinals, seven financial people. Financial people, any business school graduates here? They're 10 times more intelligent than the cardinals about this stuff, I can assure you. Okay, there we are, we're starting the meeting. And, and, and the Cardinal of, of, of Munich and Freising says, we're going to start this meeting 7.30 in the morning with Mass. Okay. Whatever you say, Cardinal, we'll do. So we're in the Pauline Chapel next to the Sistine Chapel for this Mass in Rome, in the Vatican, in the Papal Palace. And in the Pauline Chapel, why is it called Pauline? Because Michelangelo did all these extraordinary frescoes from the life of Paul. And there on the left side as we're starting the Mass last Friday evening. There's the story of tonight's reading. Paul, right on the ground. I love Michelangelo's fresco for this because others are looking at him, but there's like a whole city in frenetic activity, and they don't notice. I love the old masters. The call, the conversion, this powerful vector, the bombshell in the Acts of the Apostles of change and conversion. Michelangelo shows this happening and nobody else notices. At least not then. Sisters and brothers, you may be burning on fire with your vocational call, wherever it may be, and others maybe don't get it. And you can get, what is this? Just remember the conversion of Paul. The others are standing around. This guy who was so much in charge is suddenly on the ground. Is it a conversion? Is it a vocational call? I think it's both. But the one thing I love about this call of Paul, the guy who was so much in charge, guess what happens when he meets the Lord Jesus? He has to be led into the town like a little kid like a child, the obsessive, almost violent Saul needs the simplicity of the heart of a child. Have we heard that before from someone? As he gets the message, 
so he has to be led around. How beautiful that the one who is to be so prominent in the early days of the church after his conversion and call had to be led around like a child. Don't ever think that because somebody in your life is not achieving and you think they should be achieving the way you do, that God's not working there. And the same is true with you. The risen Jesus works in trickling increments. Every now and then, he knocks somebody over the head like Saul, but that's not normal. In fact, sisters and brothers, Saul became Paul. Paul became so prominent in the early church. What a powerful man. But who helped put Paul where he was? Barnabas, right? And you know the name Barnabas? Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Barnabas, the one who gave his money to the poor. Barnabas, who introduced Paul to the community that was afraid of him. Ah, Sisters and brothers, there's many people today who want to be Paul. I am begging some of you, please, please, I have to put up with Paul's all the time in my diocese. Please give me some Barnabases. I hope that some of you will be Barnabas as well as Paul. We need people who are cooperative in allowing the Word of God to come through. Not just somebody who wants to be the top place on the marquee. Saul got knocked down. He had to become like a child. But notice right afterwards, it's just Jesus. The same man who was breathing murderous threats against the way, in a letter that he was to write a few years later says, it's no longer Paul that lives. I don't live. It's Christ living in me. He didn't say that out of pride. He said that out of a sense of shock that he was so called. You've spent a lot of time in this university so far, sisters and brothers, in learning your field of inquiry, learning the truth of whatever it is, business, teaching, theology. But at the same time, you've been learning the truth of the risen Jesus in boldness of action and witness and in simplicity of heart. Don't lose it. And that takes us to the beauty of John 6, chapter 6. Did you ever read the opening of John's gospel right after Jesus, his first day after his baptism? Two of the disciples of John, they go and they start following him. Jesus turns around. What are you looking for? And what do they, what do they say to him? Rabbi, where do you abide? Where do you live? Where do you remain? Jesus answers, come and see. And the whole rest of John's gospel is Come and see and learn to abide. Learn to abide in Jesus. It's one of the major themes of John's gospel. It's also beautiful, the woman at the well, all these beautiful scenes. Then you get to John chapter 6, and there's this, this crisis of eating. They have no bread. Jesus, what are we going to do? You give them something to eat. What do the apostles do that they always do and therefore is a Christian obligation? when we are confronted with difficult situations. They whine. <laughs> right? Is that true? Well, we don't have little bread. We don't have much. I don't know what's... It's what they do. It's what we do. We think we have no things, and then some crisis. Well, I don't know what's going to happen. What does Jesus tell the twelve? Well, then just give me what you have right? 
Just give me what you have then. Stop whining. I'll do the rest. Do you have that kind of faith? Can you ask the Lord Jesus to do what he did for the 12? Just give me what you have. And the multiplication is incredible. Everybody gets fed. Most misunderstand what happened to be fed. And so the next day, Jesus explains, I'm the bread of life. Do you know, there's lots of people, there's lots of people who can accept Jesus when he says that. Every bit of truth, that's who I am. Every bit of nurture for meaning for your life, that's who I am. There's lots of people can accept that. Where do they have the problem? Chapter 6, verse 51, the last line of yesterday's gospel, and then today. Jesus then says, the bread I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. Hey, whoa, Mr. Jesus. That's not so good. That's when the battle starts in John chapter 6. Whoa. No, no. It's beautiful for you to be the bread of life, Jesus. We know the manna. It's wonderful for you to be the fulfillment of the prophets. But don't get too intense. The bread I will give is my flesh for the life of the... You want to abide with me? You want to come with me? There's where it is. It says that when Jesus kept insisting on this, that he even changed verbs. In the Greek, he doesn't use the normal verb to eat. He uses the word trogain, which means almost to masticate. It's as though he's being on purpose provocative to everybody. Whoever does not eat my flesh and drink my blood can't abide. You want to abide with me? It's the way you do it. That's how intimate the friendship is with those who come to me. I love, and I won't turn anyone away. You just come to me. Do you know what happens at the end of John chapter 6? That some people who were his friends walked away. And Jesus didn't back down. Instead, he looked at the 12 and said, do you want to walk away? He's looking at us. Do you want to walk, want to walk away? And Peter, for once in his life, opens his mouth and does not stick his foot in it. Huh? Before the resurrection. He says, where would we go, Jesus? He didn't say he understood it. He didn't say he got what Jesus was saying. Where, where can we go? You have the words of everlasting life. Sisters and brothers, this night, this night we've just heard God's word, an explosive force. We're going to comment on it. We're going to think about it. We're going to pray about it. But because Jesus said, the bread I will give is my flesh for the life of the world, we will not stop here. We'll go right to that altar table. As St. Augustine says, commenting on John 6, and then the whole Christ will be enacted, head and members. And you will look on that mystery of the body and blood of the Lord, and you will be fed. And you'll be united with one another, even more so than you were last night if you were at a party and had a lot of fun. The uniting you will have at this Eucharist is so powerful. That's, that's why the risen Jesus is who he is and can do this. So, what are my comments to you tonight, brothers and sisters? Go ahead and whine. It's okay. It's apostolic. But when you do it, listen to Jesus saying, just give me what you have. Don't be afraid to be led by the hand. Within the faith, within the church, 
when you've been blinded in a new call or in a deeper conversion like Paul was. The readings tonight are the most apt thing you'll ever hear this weekend. They're so boldly intelligent about what it means to live a Christian faith and to be passionate in your convictions about that faith. So, from a fellow graduate to you, thanks. You've done well over these years. Family and friends, I think you'll agree with me, they've done very well. We're proud of you, but we're more proud that you have Saul and Paul behind you, that you have the bread of life with you, and that in feeding upon him, you will abide in a way that no scholarship, no degree, no honor, no fame could ever give to you. You got half an ounce of understanding of that. Sisters and brothers, the Franciscan University of Steubenville has done its job. God bless you.